Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Hello and welcome to Unheard. It is the early part of November. It's getting cold outside and I don't know if you've noticed, but already the voices in the media have started calling for new COVID restrictions on the grounds that winter is coming and we need to get ahead of a potential winter wave. Well, at times like this, it's important to have some common sense and some balanced advice. And someone who has been giving quite a lot of that on social media is someone called Dr. Raghib Ali. He is a clinical epidemiologist uh, out of the University of Cambridge, and he's also a frontline doctor. The so-called Plan B is the government's scheme. It's sort of what they're keeping in their back pocket in case hospitalizations and cases and so on get too high. And as far as I understand it, it involves vaccine passports or certification in certain settings. Um, and it involves the reintroduction of mask mandates in other settings and, and reintroduction of work from home advice and those kinds of things. Is that a plan that you think is going to make a big difference? So I think each of those measures individually could have some impact. Um, I mean, the mask mandate has been maintained in Wales and Scotland and hasn't been shown to be particularly effective if you look at their case rates and hospitalization rates and death rates since July the 19th when we diverged, they really haven't been very different to, to England. And of course, there can be other reasons for that, but it suggests that mask mandates were not enough to prevent them from having quite significant um, caseloads and, and burden of, of COVID. I think where, Wales is England. actually higher than England. And I think Scotland That's might right. be as well. Scotland was higher than England for most of the period until the end of September, and it's, since then it's decreased. I mean, they had a, you know, they had their third kind of peak, um, particularly in September when schools went back, and now it's come back down again. We've had that in England later because our schools, you know, started later and went, um, and so we're now hopefully on the, on the downward slope of that schools. Can I just pause there? I know you're mid-flow, but it's quite a significant finding, isn't it? I mean, in the world of science, we talk about controlled experiments and so on. Obviously, at the level of nation states, it's not very easy to do perfectly controlled experiments. But you would have thought that England and Wales are about as similar as two countries can be. One of them introduced mask mandates and vaccine passports, and the other didn't. And Wales has a worse infection rate than England. What's the explanation for that? If England had had 
a mask mandate working from home with vaccine passports, then we would have had lower case rates. And people say, look at Europe, although the situation in Western Europe is changing as well now and their rates are going up. But then I counter by saying, well, look at Wales, who, as you said, did have all of these measures and it hasn't really seemed to help them. And the other problem in comparing us to countries in Western Europe is that we're at a different stage of our third waves. You know, Delta, the Delta variant arrived at different times. We're also at different stages of the vaccine rollout. Our vaccine first rollout was ahead of the rest of Europe. And so our waning immunity has also been ahead of the rest of Europe. So those kind of cross-country comparisons, as you said, are problematic. And Scotland and Wales are much better comparators. And so based on that, I don't think we can be confident that bringing back a mask mandate will really make a big difference. But I'm just, (laughs) that's one way of putting it. Can we actually be confident that it won't? I mean, given the evidence we now have with this extraordinary virtual controlled experiment of the last six months. And one of the challenges throughout the pandemic has been to understand what the impact of interventions is on COVID. Often interventions are brought in, multiple interventions are brought in at the same time or us, you know, released at the same time. And it's hard to figure out which one has, has been the main kind of cause of falling cases or, or rising cases. I mean, the mask mandate was one of a number of measures that have been different in, in those countries. I mean, I, I agree with you that there's not good evidence looking at Wales and Scotland that a mask mandate really would have helped in England. But there are other possible explanations. So, for example, Wales's vaccine rollout started even before Ingle was ahead of England's. And so maybe their immunity was falling faster than England's. Um, they have less natural immunity in Scotland because they had less infections in the previous two waves. And so maybe that's why they've had more cases. So it's not quite as simple as just saying it's because of... And the only way to resolve this really is a randomised controlled trial, which is usually impossible for these kinds of experiments. So I don't go quite as far as saying that it would... I can be confident it would make no difference, but I don't think there's good evidence that a mask mandate would have helped. I don't think there's good evidence that bringing in a mask mandate now would make a significant difference or benefit for England. Um, For vaccine passports, I think the same. But working from home is slightly different. Working from home does decrease the number of contacts that people have. And the number of contacts, of course, is critical to how any virus spreads, but particularly for COVID with a very high, with the Delta variant, with a very high transmissibility, you know, if you reduce the number of contacts. But of course, working from home has harms, so economic harms, and those have to be balanced against the potential benefits for COVID. And this is another point I made throughout the pandemic that you know, it's been somewhat simplistic um, narrative that if we had done this, COVID would have been lower, but not taking into account that, of course, COVID may have been lower, but the economic harms have health harms as well, which may have outweighed those benefits. On the vaccine passports point, just before we kind of leave that behind, there was a study that was recently leaked that had been commissioned inside, I think, the Cabinet Office, uh, looking at what the potential impact of bringing in vaccine passports for certain big event settings would be. And I think the conclusion was that it might make a difference between 1% and 5% of transmission, which when you see the bigger swings that are affected by these other factors seems to be, well, highly marginal. Do you think that's a plausible estimate? I think it is, because as they pointed out, that if you stop people attending some of these large events, then they will just attend smaller events in maybe less regulated uh, environments, and so it will not stop people meeting each other, or they just meet each other in different places. Uh, and it could have a negative impact on people's confidence in vaccine uptake, and particularly now. I mean, the critical point I feel at the moment is the uptake of vaccine, the third dose of the vaccine, so-called boosters. I mean, there's very good evidence now from Israel, from the UAE, from Bahrain, which are the three countries that have been most advanced in their booster programs, that they really made a very big difference to reducing hospitalizations 
and deaths. And I think the debate about or around Plan B has been somewhat of a distraction from the key point, which is that everybody in those kind of nine high-risk groups, as soon as they're eligible, you know, it's really very important for them to go and get their third dose, their booster dose. Um, and the take-up so far has not been as high as we would have liked. I mean, the average is about, I think, 300,000 a day. It should be nearer five to 600,000, given what we saw in the, in the first vaccine rollout. So that's really the main message, that Plan B, I think, is somewhat of a distraction um, and we should just focus our efforts really on getting those third doses um, into everyone who is at high risk. So let me just play devil's advocate for a moment here because you clearly think that the, the, the single thing to focus on are the boosters and that's the thing that's going to make the winter you know, successful or not. There are a lot of people who disagree apparently within the scientific community, um, including such celebrities as Sarah Gilbert, um, the founder, the inventor of the Oxford vaccine, or that's how she's described, who apparently doesn't think that immunity is waning all that fast and doesn't think that these boosters are necessary. And places like Sweden have also not yet introduced boosters in the same way because their their authorities are less convinced that they're yet necessary. Why do you think those people are taking a different view? So I haven't seen what uh, Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert said, um, and of course I respect her view, but the evidence that's been published that I've seen in very respectable journals, so the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, both studies showed very significant reductions in hospitalizations, deaths, um, and severe COVID by the third dose. Not This is not comparing to people that are not vaccinated, it's comparing third dose to people with two doses. And it reduced hospitalizations and deaths by between 80 and 90%, so really very large um, reductions. And other studies, again, in the New England of Medicine showed that by five months, at least for the Pfizer vaccine, the vaccine efficacy or effectiveness had gone down to 20%. Um, and we've, we, I mean, in the UK, we have also seen a waning of vaccine efficacy, not quite to the same degree, and it's not as bad for hospitalizations and deaths. But uh, I mean, Sir Andrew Pollard, I think, who was speaking at the Select Committee last week, he said, I think it was down to about 60% efficacy against hospitalization um, after six months. There was another study I saw on a preprint that has not yet been peer-reviewed, uh, looking at veterans in the US, very large cohort. And I think the, the results for the Janssen or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine over in the US were even more dramatic. They were down to single figures percentage uh, efficacy after the six-month period. Isn't the scandal, in a way, or at least the, the, the big news story, which, again, people don't seem to dwell on, that vaccines were supposed to be the end of the story? <laughs> you know, that was the whole bargain. That was what everyone signed up for. And now we find that actually the efficacy wanes much quicker than we would, might have hoped. And it looks like we're now being signed up to a kind of six-monthly regimen for the rest of eternity, on these vaccines, otherwise the, the efficacy is just going to drop. Is that how you see it? Does, do our parents and grandparents need to be taking jabs twice a year for the rest of their days? So I'm not quite so pessimistic. Um, what we don't know yet is how long immunity will last after the third dose. And it's possible that this third dose is what's required for a full course of vaccination. So we find that with other viruses, for example, hepatitis B, they need to have three doses to get that almost lifelong immunity for hepatitis B. Now, I don't expect we'll get lifelong immunity for COVID because the virus mutates um, faster and also the immune response is different. But what I think is personally the most likely outcome is that we will need annual boosters as we have or annual doses as we do have for influenza, for, for flu. 
Um, but I don't think we'll be having it every six months. Um, I mean, COVID does mutate, but not as much as uh, influenza. The other thing that we haven't yet talked about is so-called natural immunity or recovered immunity. Those people who've actually had it, what protection that gives them. And again, there have been a whole range of studies that have come to different conclusions, but at least one of them out of Israel showed a very substantial advantage, as it were, from between you know, someone who's recovered versus someone who's had two doses of the vaccine. I think they thought it, you were 27 times better protected for a certain period. I have no idea about the numbers. What's your take on that? Do you think it's true that if you've had COVID and recovered, you're likely to be much better protected, even if you've had three jabs? So that study I did see, but there have been other studies, particularly the large study from the UK, from the ONS, that I think was a better comparison, um, controlling for various what we call confounding factors, because it's, it's not as simple as just comparing those who are vaccinated to those who have natural infection. Of course, you have to adjust for all sorts of things, including age and comorbidities other diseases people have when they were vaccinated, etc. And the ONS study actually, and this was just for the Delta variant, showed that the vaccine efficacy and natural infection efficacy was similar. Um, I think the jury is still out as to, you know, exactly which one is better or worse. But uh, I think based on the ONS study, we would say that they're similar. Um, what is almost certainly also true is that if you have had natural infection followed by vaccination or vaccination followed by natural infection, both of those combinations produce even better immunity. And we've got some data on that. So those people who have had two doses and have had what we call breakthrough infection since then, they are well protected. So to conclude on this natural immunity thing, at the very least, should we be saying that it should be properly acknowledged by the government as a form of protection? Uh, like it is in Germany, for example, they have for their or, you know, certificates, they have either you've got to be vaccinated or you're going to show that you've tested or you show that you have actually recovered within the last six months from it. Do you think that makes sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense from a scientific point of view. Yep, it does make sense. I don't think vaccine passports, as I said before, are going to make a huge difference if they were bought in, in the UK. I don't personally support them. Um, but uh, if they were to be bought in, then I would in, I would have either vaccination or natural immunity or a negative COVID test as three ways of showing that you're you know at low risk of, of passing on the virus. What incidentally is your analysis for why some countries, and I name Sweden as one of them, have now very few restrictions, pretty much no restrictions, including masks, including va no vaccine passports, and are not seeing a big surge. Um, they don't even seem to be very interested in boosters and they still seem to be fine. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, how, how do you explain those kind of discrepancies? It makes any kind of mechanistic understanding of cause and effect very difficult when there's always a counterexample for whatever cure you think you might find. So I think this has been one of the problems throughout the pandemic is that you can always point to a country or countries, you know, and say, well, how come this is happening here when this is what you'd expect? And I think that's been one of the kind of limitations of the discussion is that it's not appropriate to make these comparisons at snapshots in time. So if you look at Sweden's kind of trajectory, it's not been the same as the UK or, for example, other countries. And I, it's very likely that they will have a third wave soon um, based on what's happened in the UK, based on what's happening in other countries in Europe now. I mean, rates are going up quite quickly in, in Belgium, in Austria, in the Netherlands, in Germany. And I'm sure the same will happen in Sweden as well. So I don't think you can say because they haven't got these restrictions and their rates have remained low, you can base anything on that uh, or they've not had boosters. It's just uh, the timing is, is different of their waves. So does that mean then that essentially the UK has had its delta wave or third wave just earlier than continental Europe? in which point we should see some sort of crossover, which is going to be absolute torment to those people who are constantly wanting more restrictions, when the UK might potentially come Christmas or just after, might be doing much better than the rest of Europe. Is that a scenario you think is likely? I think it is likely. And if you look at what happened after the second um, wave, so for example, between March and July of this year, we had much lower rates than most of Europe. And no one was saying at that point, <laughs> look how much better we're doing than the rest of Europe. But as soon as we go behind the rest of Europe, then people start saying, well, look how much worse we're doing. It must be because of X, Y, or Z, lack of restrictions. Um, but it's already happening. I mean, to be honest, if you, if you adjust for testing kind of differences, so the UK tests a lot more than other countries in Europe. If you adjust for testing, there are already countries in Europe who are above our case rates, despite having uh, mask mandates despite having vaccine passports, um, including Germany. I mean, Germany's, if you adjust for testing, has a higher rate than us now, um, as does Belgium and, and other countries. And the trajectory is quite steeply upward, isn't it? So, Yes. So the crossover, I mean, I suspect the crossover has already happened in a number of countries and it's going gonna, it's gonna to become more obvious over the coming month, months. So what's your sense of why that happens what you just described which is the obsession with when the uk is behind other countries that's when everyone focuses on it the total silence when the uk is ahead or doing better than other countries and this kind of insistence that certain very visible non-pharmaceutical interventions are always the miracle cure despite the endless evidence that 
the effect they make is pretty marginal. Where did this conversation go wrong? How did we get stuck in this weird rut for such a huge amount of time? I, mean, I think it goes back to what I described as, as the first myth, um, and it all starts from, from there. And it's in the public kind of imagination, people still think that the UK has the worst kind of death toll in Europe. Um, and it's all down to the lack of locking down early in the first and, and second waves. And that's really taken hold across uh, you know, a large section of, of the media and the public. And those, what I describe as myths, are not really based on the evidence. So if you look at what happened across, and you, you know, just to compare after what happened after the first wave was not appropriate, you have to look at what happened after the second wave as well. So you may recall that Sage back in uh, March 2020, they said that it was a unanimous view that if you suppress this wave too strongly, it will return worse, it will come back worse in the winter and would overwhelm you know, the NHS. And so they did not recommend to lock down too hard too early back in March 2020. People subsequently say well, that was the wrong advice. We should have locked down early. We would have had a small first wave and everything would have been fine. We would have been like Norway or New Zealand. And I mean, that's possible, but it's very unlikely. If you look at what actually happened in most countries that are similar <laughs> to the UK, you know, we're a global travel travel hub we have lorries crossing the channel every day thousands of them you know we can never cut ourselves off in the way that other countries did if you look at eastern europe in particular they had very very small first waves i mean almost non-existent first they locked down early they closed their borders they had very small first waves and then when the second wave came in the autumn and winter of last year they tried to do that again but compliance was much lower and they had much worse second waves and much higher overall death tolls than the uk so what Sage yeah. predicted actually happened, but most people don't know that. And so they still assume that it was due to the lack of lockdown. And then, for example, with the circuit breaker lockdown, again, people say if we'd had the circuit breaker lockdown, you know, we would have had a lower death toll. And they ignore the fact that Wales, which, as you said, is, is the best comparator in many ways, had the circuit breaker lockdown. And actually their performance in the second wave, performance is the wrong word, the death toll in the second wave and excess death was not only the same as England, but worse than you know, the comparison was worse compared to the first wave. So it's just too simple, it's simplistic to say that if we had done this, this would have happened. It's really not based on, it's based on a selective selection of countries and a selective reading of the evidence. And, and my point throughout this has been to try to look at the totality of the evidence. I think what you say is right. I mean, I, I remember the discussion around those Eastern European countries, and it's the only time I've ever heard the liberal media be nice about Hungary, at least in recent years, because suddenly, you know, the strong government of Hungary had closed the borders, which is what that government is minded to do at the best of times, and locked down and everything. And everyone said, oh, great, these small countries have been so wise and effective. And then, of course, as you say, the second wave was really quite bad in, in those places. It all seems so motivated, doesn't it? And so political and such cherry picking of evidence that I think many people at this point, it's been going on for more than a year and a half, they're just sort of exhausted by it. And they accept that it's now become a kind of partisan battle uh, where everyone is trying to prove one way or the other. Is that your experience? Do you think it's sort of past the point of any wisdom now and it's just a kind of mudslinging match? I mean, I hope not. I've been saying for over a year that I hope people would not use you know, COVID as a, uh, a reason to score kind of political points, um, because ultimately we are all trying to achieve the same thing. I mean, I, I don't doubt the good intentions of the people who disagree with my interpretation of the evidence. I think we're all aiming to reduce the harm from COVID and then the response to it. But I do think that people on, I mean, it, it applies to both sides, to be honest. I mean, one of the points I made in, 
in the article I wrote in the, in the Telegraph is that these there are myths on the other side as well. So, for example, people say that lockdown makes no difference at all. You know, even though there's again lots of evidence, and it's just common sense if you stop people from meeting each other for a prolonged period of time, you know, it's harder for a virus to transmit. I mean, the key question was whether that the harm of those lockdowns exceeded the benefits, and that's an, you know that's a, an open question. And also whether it just delays, because if the effect is just to delay, then even if there are no harms, it would still be pretty pointless. Pretty I mean, pointless. I think there was only two, and just to clarify, I did support the lockdowns for two reasons. One is because you're right that lockdowns don't prevent disease and they postpone it, except, but the, the reason why a lockdown can be justified is really for two reasons. One is if your health system is gonna be overwhelmed and then you get a you know, a multiplying effect. So not only, not only do people die from COVID, but from all other diseases because they can't get emergency care. And given the system we have in the UK, um, that was likely to happen because of our limited bed doctor, nurse, intensive care capacity compared to, for example, countries like Germany or Austria that, you know, who, or Switzerland who have a lot more capacity. And the second is when you've got the vaccine rollouts, at least the, the rollout of the first vaccine rollout, because those people that get vaccinated, you know, for example, during the third lockdown, they were being now protected. So when you lift lockdown, those people are no longer going to get hospitalized or die from COVID. So there's the two justifications for when it's appropriate to have restrictions. Okay, so can, let me just push back on those just because why not? So the first one is that the NHS might have been overwhelmed. Isn't the extraordinary finding of the past year and a half that it wasn't at all? I mean, we people clutch at these straws that individual you know, emerge accident and emergency hospitals may exceeded certain thresholds on certain number of days for very small amounts of period. But in, in reality, we built 10,000 additional hospital beds in those so-called Nightingale hospitals, almost none of which were ever used. And the health system was actually pretty good throughout 2020 and had, there was lots of reports of doctors actually you know, being underused during some of those periods. So what was your experience in the John Radcliffe Hospital? And is it even true that our health system neared collapse? So I think this is a, a somewhat of a misconception. And I also fell into this myself, but it's true that particularly in the first wave, you know, A&E departments, hospitals were less busy than usual because the number of COVID patients that came in, fortunately, was not as bad as we had expected. And we cancelled not just in, I mean, this was throughout the country. And uh, we cancelled, you know, all elective services. Um, and many people stopped coming in because they were scared of catching COVID, which is understandable, particularly if you're high risk. So we had uh, excess deaths, and this is seen in, in the first wave from other causes as well, from people not presenting for medical attention when they should have done. So although it wasn't overwhelming in the sense that people couldn't, you know, that there were enough, there were, we never ran out of beds, but it was overwhelming in a different sense that we were no longer providing all services. And that happened to an even greater extent in the second uh, wave over last winter. And so that did have a negative impact. And that's huge an, that, isn't that an effect of our decision? It's, an, it's a secondary effect of a COVID response policy, in effect. Like, it, the, the interesting counterfactual is what if we hadn't changed it? What if we hadn't emptied out the hospitals, cancelled elective procedures? What if the health system had been allowed to carry on pretty much as normal throughout that period? Would we be in, a, in fact, a better situation now? So we can't answer that definitively, but what we can say is what happened in the second wave. And so in the second wave, which, you know, we had even more COVID patients in the first wave, we tried to carry on uh, with delivering all electives. Eventually it became impossible because there were just too many COVID patients. Um, and too many doctors were also off sick, too many nurses were off sick. 
And it was simply impossible to carry on delivering all services. And as again, the same thing happened. People didn't come to hospital because they were scared of catching COVID. And lots of people did catch COVID in, in hospitals as well. So in effect, you know, the hospital or the NHS was unable to carry out all of its core functions. And I would classify that as being overwhelmed. And these huge waiting lists that we see now are a direct result of having too many COVID patients in hospital and too many NHS staff being off sick with COVID. So it was essential to stop that wave getting any bigger. And uh, I think that was why lockdowns were justified on those two specific occasions. Okay, so let's give us, if you don't mind, your projection. Are we going to be okay for Christmas? Should we be making plans to see family members and get together and have a big old jolly Christmas? Or what, what are you, if you're a betting man, what do you think the COVID situation will be in the UK around Christmas time? And also, what do you think the restrictions will be? And then we can get you on in the beginning of January to see if you were right. <laughs> so one of the things I think I've learned over the course of the last 18 months is not to, to be definitive in predictions. But uh, of course, it's important. We have to have some idea of what we think is going to happen to help policymakers make decisions. I know modelers have, had a, have got a bad name over the last 18 months, but of course, they're doing their best given the data that's available. And as they always say, they produce scenarios, not predictions. The latest set of scenarios produced by the modelers, I'm not a modeler myself, I'm what's called a clinical epidemiologist, so I don't produce mathematical models. It's more looking at empirical data and trying to understand what that tells us. Um, but now we do have agreement, actually. So most of the modelers also think that cases, hospitalizations, and deaths will fall over the coming months because of the very high levels of population immunity we have through a combination of vaccination and natural immunity. Um, and therefore, it's very unlikely, unless there is some new variant, which you know we have seen before, of course. In the absence of a new variant, it's very hard to see how we would get to a situation like we were last winter. And because of that, I don't think we're going to have any new restrictions between now and Christmas. Um, at the same time, I would advise everyone with elderly relatives or relatives with you know, comorbidities with the diseases that put them at high risk of COVID infection, um, which I was in what's you know, in the same situation myself with, with my late father, is to take care, you know, when you're meeting with them, if they're at high risk, um, and to enjoy yourself, but uh, taking responsibility, um, again, you know, as, as best as you can. That sounds like extremely sensible advice. Uh, Dr. Raghib Ali, thank you so much. Thank you, Freddie. That was Dr. Raghib Ali, a clinical epidemiologist out of the University of Cambridge. And may I say what a pleasure it was to talk to him when you speak to someone who actually seems quite balanced, not too extreme in either direction, but ready to talk common sense on this fraught topic of COVID. It's a rare pleasure. Thanks to him and thanks to you for joining. This was Unheard. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love 
my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code AnyStyle24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com, promo code AnyStyle24.